Welcome to this week's sermon at New City Fellowship. Followers of Jesus are a people of the book who root deep in God's word. Let's root deep and grow through engaging Holy Scripture. Today, though, we are continuing a series in the Apostles' Creed. We started off the service by saying what we believe in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the, in the Holy Spirit. And um, today we're looking at the first full the first full clause. Last week we looked at that phrase, just said, I believe. And today we're going to look at the phrase, I believe in God. I believe in God. And as we go through this, I want to encourage you to kind of put your thinking caps on today. We're going to share some quotes. We're going to talk about what the culture believes about God. And we're going to look at that phrase, I believe in God. Because many people uh, used to be believe in God, including the actor Ricky Gervais. You know, Ricky Gervais, who was the actor who started The Office in the UK. And, and he said this, I used to believe in God, the Christian one that is, I love Jesus, he was my hero. But there's this interview with Ricky Gervais where he talks about how he used to believe in God. And he was about eight or nine years old, and his 19-year-old brother came in while Ricky was eating breakfast. And his 19-year-old brother sat down with eight-year-old Ricky and said, why do you believe in God? And both of their mom was there. And the mom looked at the older brother and said, Bob, stop it. And and Ricky kind of looked at his mom and looked at Bob and went, wait a minute. There's something going on here. I don't think Bob believes in God. And I don't think my mom, if you're in Britain, you have to say my mom. I don't think my mom believes in God either. And Ricky Gervais said that he sat down as an eight-year-old for about an hour, and he thought about it. And after about an hour, he said he talked himself into being an atheist. He no longer believed in God. He said that he came to the conclusion that he, he no longer needed a reason for his existence, just a reason to live. He thought that imagination, free will, love, humor, fun, music, sports, beer, pizza, are all good enough reasons for, le- for living. He-, he didn't need the idea of God. Many people don't believe in God, and they look at God as some sort of crutch. If you believe in God, it's like a way to, to sort of have a crutch, much like we do at Christmas time with Santa Claus, right? It's not real. But if you need to believe in God to get through the day, then that's fine. And many people believe in it that way. As the author Julian Barnes said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. In other words, I wish he exists, but I don't think he really does. Still, the majority of people in our culture actually believe in some sort of higher power, in some sort of spiritual force, even if they're not sure which God to believe in. Cheryl Crow, the singer, says this, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus and Buddha, and Muhammad, and all those who were enlightened. In other words, I do believe in God, but I just think God is kind of everything and everywhere, and everyone who's spiritual has an aspect of God in them. And she really captures sort of the spirit of our culture when it comes to belief in God. A woman and author named Tara Isabella Burton calls our culture's view of God religiously 
remixed, religiously remixed. And about 50% of the population or more adopts this view of religious remix when it comes to belief in God. Now, by that, she means this. Some people are spiritual, but not religious. And what that means is maybe they have one foot in the door of a church, or they sort of grew up in a religion, but their primary source of purpose and meaning in life is not found in the church. It's not found in religion. It's found somewhere else. They're spiritual, but not religious. Still, other people are faithful nuns. And by nuns, we don't mean the nuns that you find in a Catholic church, but those who have no religious affiliation. They might believe in a higher power out there, but they don't know who it is, and they themselves certainly don't have any religious identity at all. None. Lastly, as part of this religiously remixed are the people we would call religious hybrids. They might belong to a Christian church, or, or, or they might belong to a Muslim group, or they might go to temple with Hindus, they might have grown up that way, but they don't think that that religious group is all-encompassing. They, they might unbundle that particular religion and find things that they like about God within that religion, but also go to somewhere else to find things that they like about God from another religion. They might disregard certain aspects of Christianity and supplement it with ideas from other worldviews and other religions. They're religious hybrids. And so when we look at all these things in our culture and this view of God that's so diverse and religiously remixed, it almost feels arrogant for Christians to say that we believe in God, the one true God, and the path set before us by Jesus Christ is the one true path. Can that be in our culture? Can that be? See, what, what we've done in our culture is the, the way we look at spirituality is much like paths up a mountain. Now, here's a, a picture of K2, one of the hardest mountains to hike in the world. And there's multiple ways that you can hike up K2. But once you're on one of those paths, you can't really see the other paths. You're just on your path. And that's the way people view God in our culture. That's the way people view spirituality is there's many paths to get to the top. There's many paths to get to God but just because you're on one path doesn't mean someone else's path is wrong. You just can't see how their path gets to the same place you're going. And even as we look at, you know, even as we look at that, that view of God seems enlightened. It seems humble. It seems inclusive. Because everyone believes about religion, that all religions are fundamentally the same, but just super, superficially different. In other words, our culture looks at Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and says, it's all the same, really. It's, it's more that the, the, the differences are just really minor. They're just really minor. And so when we say, I believe in God, and we look at this 1,800-year-old creed that we're saying each week, it sort of seems just implausible. It seems unbelievable. The God of the creed doesn't seem credible, doesn't seem possible, doesn't seem believable. Today, I wanna push back on that. And I've got three points that I wanna look at. When we say, I believe in God, I wanna help you see that believing in God, that God is believable as creator. 
that God is knowable as Trinity, a three-in-one God, and that God is present with his people. God is believable, God is knowable, and God is present. So let's start off with God is believable as creator. The creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator, creator, creator of heaven and earth. The Bible starts off in Genesis 1 with this text. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and and there was light. Now, many people look at this and say, there's absolutely no evidence for this supernatural miracle. There cannot have been a creator. There's no way science debunks faith. We talked a little bit about that last week. But there was a scientist who explored this, and he came to, he came to the conclusion that he actually did believe in God because of the precision of the way that the universe was made. And he, he wrote a little article called Seven Reasons Why I Believe in God. And four of those I want to share with you. He, he talked about the rotation of the earth. And he said that the earth spins on its axis at about 1,000 miles per hour. Now, if it spun at 100 miles an hour, much slower, it would make the days 10 times longer and the nights 10 times longer. And all the vegetation would freeze at night or be scorched during the day. Us, us included, but secondly, he said, what about the position of the earth? The sun is 12,000 degrees on the surface, and yet the earth just finds itself just far enough away from the sun that we don't burn up, nor do we freeze. A little bit that way, we would all be frozen. A little bit this way, we would all be scorched. He says, what about the moon? That the current distance, the moon, if, if that was changed, if the moon was moved to a different position, it could be that twice a day, the tides would flood over all of the globe and everything would be underwater twice a day. What about the atmosphere? If the atmosphere was just a little bit thinner, all the meteor, meteorites that fly around the universe, would not get burned up when they hit our atmosphere, but would rather break through our atmosphere and land on the, land on the globe and destroy us. Uh, friends, maybe you have a hard time believing in God as creator or that all of this was created, but the precision of the design points to a designer. The, the symmetry of the architecture points to an architect. The, the prevalence of life against such overwhelming circumstances that there shouldn't be life points to one who gives life. And here's the thing, you go, well, listen, what you're talking about is a miracle and none of us were there to see it. Hands up, you got us. But the same thing is exactly true of the Big Bang Theory. We're talking about a miracle that happened that no one saw. Either way, you have to accept something by faith. And it comes down to, do you look around and do you see order? Do you see design? Do you see beauty and purpose and intention? Or do you see 
chaos? Do, do you think it's likely that all of this is just an accident? Because if you think all of it was just an accident, then you're an accident. You're an accident. When, when we talk about humanity, if we look around and we believe the universe is completely random, then there is no sense of order. There's no, there's no real story for us besides the fact that we were just accidental. And what that means is everything is really in our minds. It's, really, it's, not, it's not meaningful. There's not a greater purpose in this life. Rather, everything is just our synapses firing in order for us to survive. It's survival of the, of the fittest. So even when you fall in love, that's not bigger than yourself. That's not purposeful and meaningful. It's just your brain firing in a certain way to make a connection so you can keep the human species going. And yet when we fall in love, we know it's more than that. We know that there's something bigger and grander about connecting with the person who is your soulmate. God created us, not accidentally, not just to survive, but rather to thrive. In Genesis 1, 27 through 28, at the very end of that chapter, we see that God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. When God created humanity, he created the male and female with intention, not accident, with purpose. It wasn't meaningless. With dignity. He created us to thrive in this world. We are not an accident. The universe is not an accident. The architecture points to an architect. The design points to a designer. The creation points to a creator. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't hard things to figure out in the midst of that. I understand, and I can't cover all of that today, but what I want you to do, I want you to just think for a moment. If we're going to hold the creation account with an amount of skepticism, shouldn't we also hold the Big Bang Theory to the same amount of skepticism if we weren't there and it's such a miraculous event itself? Friends, if we are willing to question both of these things equally, we will see that there is evidence for the existence of the God that the creed points us to. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. God is knowable God is creator, and he's believable as creator, but he's also knowable as trinity. Uh, back to that mountain that I looked at earlier, that picture of K2, where all these different hiking routes lead to the top. And we, we sort of view that as the way that we approach God in our culture. Everyone has their own path, and who are you to judge someone else? And you just can't see their path to God. And so whether you're Hindu or Muslim or Christian or Jewish, it all goes to the same place. And as we said, that view of spirituality comes across as enlightened, right? It comes across as humble and inclusive. But I want to challenge that. I don't think it's enlightened. I don't think it's humble. I don't think it's inclusive. I actually think that view of God, that view of spirituality, is incredibly arrogant, exclusive, and assuming. And here's why. If everyone is on the path 
and they just can't see each other. The person who says, I actually am the one who can see everything. I'm the one who gets it. These religions don't get it, but I get it. I'm the one above the mountain who has access to all the information. I can see that not everyone else gets it. If they would just take my view on spirituality, everything would be okay. That's arrogant to say you're the one who sees it and everyone else sees it incorrectly. In fact, you're doing exactly what you say the people on the path are doing. People on the path are doing is saying they're wrong, I'm right. The person who says everything's like the mountain, every path is the same. They're also saying you're wrong and I'm right. It's not humble, it's arrogant. But then secondly, it's exclusive because you're still trying to get other people to adopt your view of God and spirituality. And if people don't take your view of God, if they don't if they don't buy into the mountain, the pass up the mountain, it still ends up being exclusive. But then thirdly, it's assuming. It's by blind faith. There's no evidence that this is the way the world actually works. It's just someone's hot take on spirituality. And so even though this person might seem enlightened and humble and inclusive, I think the view is actually arrogant and exclusive and quite assuming by blind faith itself it still has to say, I believe, rather than I can prove. The truth is, while we think that all religions and all views of gods are fundamentally similar and superficially different, they're actually the opposite. They're only superficially similar, and yet fundamentally they're very different. If you look in and you study different religions, yes, they all talk about God mostly. They all talk about a path to God, but they describe God completely differently. They talk about ways to approach God that are not similar at all. For, for instance, Buddha. Buddha's last words that he said to his followers were, work hard to gain your salvation. Strive. Jesus' last words were, it is finished. I have gained your salvation for you. That is totally different. That is totally different. But secondly, as we think about, as I've talked with other friends who, um, who are Muslims or they come from a Hindu faith, our view of how God is in terms of his knowability is completely different. So my friends who have been Muslim have described God as personal, but not near. In other words, he's a person, but he so far removes himself from humanity that he's not really knowable. This is why to a Muslim, someone, someone saying that God came in Jesus Christ is so offensive and that Jesus would die on the cross as a criminal is even more offensive. So in the Muslim view of God, God is personal, but he's so distant that he's not knowable. Where in the Hindu view of God, God is near because he's everywhere and he's in everything, but he's not personal because he's everything. Where in the Christian view of God, it's something so different. God is both personal and near, and so he's knowable. First of all, look at how he describes himself in Jeremiah 9, 23 through 4. This is one of my favorite passages. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. 
The wealthy should not boast in his wealth, but the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, a couple things just from that passage, just from two verses, is, is the Lord, God, the God that the, the creed says we believe in God, that God is saying, I am knowable. You can get to know me. In fact, I love to be known. The person who is most fully alive is the one whose deepest affection is held in that he knows me. And this God who is knowable actually has things that he likes and he dislikes. He doesn't like pride. He doesn't like when people take their greatest pride in being wise or being strong or being wealthy. Rather, he, he likes it when people's greatest boast is that they get to know this God who has these preferences for what he wants to see happen in this world. What does he want to see? Faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. These are the very things that God loves to see in his world. And when it says the word, word the Lord, we should know that that's not an ambiguous name for God. That's representative of the Hebrew word Yahweh, the holy name of God. Did you know our God has a name? Name is Yahweh. And he reveals that to his people because he is personal and he is knowable. Now, I think we have such a hard time understanding the, that God is personal because when we hear personal in our culture, we hear personalized. And there's a really big difference between God being personal and God being personalized. We have been so shaped by consumerism that we, we just think that we can customize everything to ourselves. But God is not customizable. I was looking at some lyrics to a song that were done by DJ Khaled and Rick Ross and Lil Wayne and Jay-Z. And, and they said this, <clears throat> let me put that slide up. They wanted us down, but look at us now. They counted us out. They didn't think that we would make it. They didn't believe in us. Oh, but I know God did, God did. Now, now a couple things. First of all, DJ Khaled is Muslim. Lil Wayne is Catholic. They're not even really talking about the same description of God. But then secondly, their whole view of God has to do with God doesn't like those people because they don't like us. God's all about our success. Is that the story of God? Or is it much bigger than us just getting what we want out of life? Uh, friends, this is an example of how we think that God is customizable. God is personal, but he's not personalizable, if that's a word, if I can use. It reminds me of this little video I saw of a two-year-old kid. And the two-year-old kid's parents had let them play with an iPad. And so they were sitting there on the iPad and they were able to move the icons around. They were able to play games. And just by touching the screen, they were able to see the screen become more of what they wanted it to be. And then it was really funny, the parents took the iPad away and they gave the kid a magazine from the newsstand. And the kid held it the same way and he started pressing on it and trying to move things around and he just got frustrated because it was not customizable. 
Friends, we are like that two-year-old because everything in our world is personalized to us. You can make your phone do what you want. You can find different routes to work. You can go to the to Target and pick one of 200 toothbrushes that you feel best fits your teeth. And while the world can be personalized to us, our God is not personalizable. He is personal. And there's a huge difference. So he wants to know us, but he cannot be customized to us. But he does want to know us. 2 Corinthians 13.13 talks about the person of God in the Trinity. One God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And and look at his posture towards his people. The the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just talking about Jesus' death on the cross for sinners. The love of God, referring to the Father who sent the Son so that those who believe in the Son could be reconciled to God and call him Father. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, That is to say, the third person of the Trinity wants to be in your life and wants to befriend you and know you and change you and make you more like Jesus. Be with the best of you. Be with those of you who really have your act together. No. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Be be with you all. Here we see this God who is knowable, who is in perfect relationship with himself, perfect harmony, and yet through the work of his son, invites us to be part of the friendship that he has with himself. We don't become God, but we are sucked into relationship with him so that when we are baptized, we are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's not just some blind ritual that someone came up with. That's something that Jesus instructed his disciples to do so that you would know you have been marked by a God who wants to be in relationship with you. God is knowable as Trinity but he's also present with his people. The God we believe in, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. He's the God who wants to be present with his people. If you notice in the creed, if you can see behind me, it says, I believe in God on the first line, which is representative of God the Father. But then if you go a couple lines down, the next section says, I believe in Jesus Christ. And that part of the creed is all about Jesus leaving heaven to come and sacrifice himself and be near to broken, sinful humanity so that we could know God. And then the third there says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And the information, the truths in that paragraph are all about what the Holy Spirit does in us when he comes to live in us once we believe in Jesus. Do you see a pattern? A God who is moving to be present with his people. A God who is near, a God who loves, a God who heals, a God who fills our broken souls. This is the God that the creed tells us is the God of the Bible. A couple months ago, a revival broke out at Asbury Seminary. Asbury's a seminary and a college, I believe it's in Kentucky. I had a couple friends that went there and And basically what happened was like a a college pastor got up 
and preach this sermon about how short we fall in loving one another. And then after that sermon, like singing just started. And then like an hour later, there was still singing. And then like an hour after that, there was like more singing and people coming up and confessing their sins. And then like a day later, the same thing was start, still going on. And then like three days later, it was still happening and, and the rest of the country starting to get wind of what's going on. And people start driving to Asbury College to experience what's going on in that little chapel, that little college chapel. And a week passed and then 10 days passed and it just kept going and going. And then, and then after about 14 days, Asbury Seminary said, look, this has been an incredible work of God. We know that the, the spirit has been present here with his people, but like, we got to wind this down. Like we can, these kids got classes to take, you know? And, and, and I love that picture of the presence of the Holy Spirit with his people. And I'm not saying that everything was perfect about the revival. I mean, anytime you have a revival like that, there's always some weird things that happen. But, but I, I, as I thought about the revival, there was a tweet that a pastor friend of mine tweeted, and it really got my attention. Because he was talking about Generation Z. You know Generation Z, they're the generation that's in college right now. Some of you are Generation Z. And I don't want to put you on the spot, but, but, but we know as we've analyzed different generations, one of the things that Generation Z struggles with is loneliness and anxiety and mental health struggles and shame. And Patrick Miller, who was a, a pastor, tweeted this. And he said this about Generation Z. He said he couldn't believe how much ownership Generation Z took of this revival and what it did to them. He said the most anxious generation in history had an experience with God characterized by peace. The most lonely generation experienced a revival characterized by intimate prayer. The most digital generation experienced a revival in an analog chapel. A generation living in the wreckage of narcissistic leaders experienced a revival characterized by humble leadership. A generation who saw the politicization of everything experienced a revival that said no to every pundit aiming to politicize it. A generation who suffered the collective trauma of COVID isolation found healing in a massive crowd together. A generation brought up in the height of anti-institutionalism found God in a mandatory chapel service at a denominational institution. And lastly, a generation whose lives have been digitally mined and sold to advertisers encountered God without branding, without ads, without marketing. God is present with his people. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, not just with Gen Z, not just with boomers, not just with Gen X, but anyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus. See friends, as we ask this question, is God believable? There is sufficient evidence that God is believable as creator, but more than that, more than just knowing in your head whether he exists or not, there is an opportunity to know him personally as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit. 
Because this God, the one true God, wants to be present with you and heal you and come near to you. And he sees your sin and he sees your shame and he sees your doubt and he sees your backsliding and he sees all the reasons that he should not be committed to you. But because you cling to his son, Jesus Christ, you are his. Let's pray. Thank you for tuning in. Please take a minute to rate our sermon podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and experience the power of God's word.